Welcome to another great day of Early Music Monday. We're going to have a conversation with Michael John Trotta about composition, about early music, about something that he has then coined the anatomy of creativity, and we'll go into that a little bit. This is Early Music Monday. couple of logistical notes before we start. My students, the other day, I was playing the piano with them in rehearsal, and I was like, y- you're not quite hearing this. Just listen to me play on the piano. Just listen. Get into your ear for a sec. This part, you're, you keep missing. And uh, I was playing it, and I, my students all started laughing, and I was like, what? And they're like, you breathe so intense. When you play it even with us, you're just like, and I was like, yeah, my, the conductor in me has gotten used to breathing very audibly anytime I breathe, so that way they can hear, and I realize I do that on this podcast too, so I will try, I will try very hard to not breathe like this in between phrases, and I will just breathe like this, so you can't hear anything. Okay, now that's out of the way. Today's episode had a great conversation with Michael John Trotta. I had not been, and as you'll hear in the interview, I mentioned this to him, but I'd I'd never been introduced to Michael's music before, um, before I saw Tenebrae video of his setting of Ubi Caritas, and it's really good. And I was like, man, it incorporates the chant. It's really simple, but it's, it, it, to me, it strikes a really good balance between, like, um, uh, fluffy, for lack of a better word, where there, it's just like, it's not that complex and intellectual, and it's just kind of, there's not any substance. And, academic music that has no feeling behind it and it's like purely intellectual right the the pendulum that swings back and forth and i think his strikes the balance between the two really well it's not super complex but but it's well crafted and the the individual vocal lines work really well so it i think it's crafted really well and uh, i was like man i got to have this guy on so he was nice enough to agree to come onto the show, so and you'll learn a lot. Uh, I learned a lot talking to him, and I hope you do too. Something that he mentions in the interview is uh, a kind of an educational program outreach thing that he does um, with composing masterclasses and all other things is this anatomy of creativity. So... The anatomy of creativity. When I'm composing something, I feel like I have this eternal struggle between I sit down at the piano and I'm improvising and I'm like, man, that's a really cool thing. I'm going to write that down. And then I write it down and it's like, cool, now what? And then I go and try to like do the craft part where I'm, you know, working on the nuts and bolts and the nitty gritty 
and I get so wrapped up in, ooh, this would be a cool thing because this is the opposite of this, and this is related to this by this interval, and if we do this rhythmic pattern, then we can do another rig- And then I get locked into this intellectual side, and I lose some of that just creative intuition. But then when I go back to playing at the piano, first of all, I'm limited by my own piano skills because I am terrible. And then secondly is I just kind of end up floating around, and I'm, but I get some cool motivic ideas, and they're really beautiful and moving, and it has the heart into it, but then again, I'm missing the technique. So I go back and forth all the time, and it's really frustrating. So this Anatomy of Creativity, um, as is mentioned in the interview, will be posted in the show notes. This document will be posted to in the show notes, or a link to it will be posted in the show notes. Um, it's amazing, and it, it really applies to any field. I think that regardless of if if you if you're if you're wanting to compose and you're a composer, if you're a performer, if you're a musicologist, if you're a conductor, if you're a music listener, if you are, it doesn't matter. Like the list could go, and even if you're listening to this podcast for some weird reason and you're not a musician and you don't like choral music, you should probably like see a therapist. But then the other reason, it doesn't matter. You could learn in your field, whatever whatever creative field it is. You could even apply this to something like business and finance. Because if you're starting a business, that's technically a creative field. You're creating something, a business. You have to come up with a business model. You have to come up with, I hate the word product, so a value proposition. What are you going to create? How are you going to create it? How are you going to run it? So it doesn't really matter what you do. I think any creative field has this kind of balance between head and heart and uh, intellect versus emotion, cerebral versus amygdalal. That's not real, whatever I just said. But you get the picture. So in this document, there's three areas. There's kind of three categories that he talks about as being part of how to organize or craft beauty and the anatomy of creativity. There's kind of three areas. You have wholeness, perfection, unity, coherence, I guess, like how, how it's connected to itself. You have proportion or form. Another word would be like balance. And then radiance or clarity, um, really clear, clearly expressed things. So, you know, you have the balance of all this, well, balance of balance, first of all, obviously. But is it? does it feel cohesive? It's together. It's one thing. It balances a lot of opposites, and it's clear in its intent. And I think that's really good. And that's something that I think about often when I'm composing or when I'm conducting is how do we, how do we express those things? So we talk a little bit about that and how it's applied to early music, how it's applied to his music. We'll uh, do another episode here uh, in the future where we talk more about that in depth and I'll use some of my own compositions as a as an example I guess um, just because I'm working on them or or because that they're just recently finished whatever and 
some uh, some other musical examples going forward. So, so I also want to do a couple episodes coming up where we talk about the balance between head and heart, you know, intellect versus emotion, and yeah, I'm saying all this to keep me accountable, so that way I know, okay, you have to do this. You said you would, so you have to do it. It's out there. It's in the world, so it has to happen. Um, okay, without any further ado then, we will go now to our interview with Michael John Trotta. Disclaimer, I had a little bit of a little bit of trouble with my audio to, at first. There's been significant editing, but it, it kind of sounds funky a little bit. My microphone, anyway, it gets fixed partway through. Don't let that bother you. Anyway, disclaimer over. Interview now. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and... Um, sharing your expertise i am actually relatively new to to your work i have not been exposed to your works before um until i saw a tenebrae video a little bit ago of the uh ubi caritas and and then i saw the a couple uh, subsequent i can speak (laughs) subsequent videos following that they put out and then I just kind of went down the rabbit hole that is your catalog and, and found a lot of really great stuff. And I think it's really, I mean, we are in Utah and you are in the East Coast, so maybe that has something to do with it. But I was like, how have I not, what is happening? Why are we not programming more of this guy and <laughs> that sort of thing? So it's it's a pleasure. And uh, so I'd love to, you know, hear any of your thoughts and how you got into to composing and a little bit of your background to you know your 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 version of your bio. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much, and thanks for having me. And yeah, Cameron, I've really enjoyed um, I've really enjoyed getting to know your podcast. It, it's such a valuable conversation to to be had. Not I, I just I find that it really brings um, the importance you know the importance of early music and how relevant it is right now. It brings it brings that conversation up, and it's an important conversation to be having. Um, mm. You know that all of this music is alive right now. It is alive and well, and 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 not only is it alive and well, but so much we have so much to learn from those who came before us, and that really does influence what we do today as musicians for sure. So yeah. thanks for bringing that to the forefront. I really enjoyed getting to the, to know more about your podcast. And oh, thank you. A very uh, a very happy and, and fruitful conversation moving forward for sure oh thank you and I see the the, the p- picture you have hung behind you of the manuscript and and so I know I'm in good company with <laughs> someone who appreciate it for the benefit of those just listening I actually have two uh, in my photo my picture right now the one behind me which was a gift which is much later and then all the way in the very 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 back oh yeah yeah there's another one there's another one that 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 uh, I, I think we did some research on it all the way back to the 14th century. Wow. Um, 14th, maybe 15th. So yeah, no, the uh, manuscripts and, and original manuscripts. I have great love for that. Um, you know, I'm one of those people. I have I had four years of Latin in high school, right? Nice. And, and I just never would have imagined that. I would literally be using that that Latin <laughs> on a daily basis. You know, doing translations, my own translations at times and whatnot. So, wow. Uh, 
you know, I think I think uh, Fortune had a really good, a really big hand in, in things working out the way that they did for me, specifically with regard to, you know, I was kind of planted around musical excellence from a very early age. Um, you know, and, and and for me, you know, I I I had a just a fantastic public school music education experience. Nice. Um, I didn't know, you know, and in two ways it was fantastic. One, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know that every high school choir didn't do unaccompanied Bach motets, right? Um, <laughs> I thought everyone did that. I, I didn't know that, you know, movements from the Brahms Requiem, for example, weren't on everyone's, you know, program. So really high level of literature, um, but also, you know, from an educator's perspective, um, you know, my two most seminal musical influences are, are my high school theory teacher and my high school choir teacher, two different men. Um, both of them, you know, Lauren Donnelly and Paul Caliando and, and, and both of those men, you know, I thought they were magicians. I right. Thought, I thought that, that somehow they had something that was magic. You know, yeah. to be able to sit down, you know, uh, I remember Lauren Donnelly, we'd sit down and play from the Messiah, singing the arias, you know, and, and, and I, just, I just thought you came that way. <laughs> right. What was amazing to me was those two men took me and they showed me, they helped me bridge this fantastical idea that some people had it and some people didn't, right? That, right. that myth. And, and they helped me see that music is a skill and a craft that can be taught. Yeah. And, you know, I'm forever grateful for them. I never, never would have imagined that my life would be as a full-time musician, let alone a full-time composer. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm grateful for those, for those people. And, and there's so many people doing that work, um, you know, and, and my experience in the musical world is first and foremost as an educator. Um, yeah. I taught for, for 15 years prior to uh, being a full-time composer, right? And right. So, you know, in my degrees, I have degrees in music education and choral conducting. I have no degree in composition. And, yeah. and I, I think for me, my job was always how do I make, you know, how can I get my choir to sound like the best version of itself? Mm. And, and for me, the impetus to write came from working with Changing Voices, yeah, and there were there were people who were excited about singing, but the music, specifically some of the contemporary music that, that we were programming, didn't always include that. Right. Right. So, so really, my experience as a composer began very organically out of writing for the groups that were in front of me. Yeah. Um, this is first with changing, changing voices, then. Um, you know, the first time I started writing, you know, music for its, you know, whole choral octavos, say octavo length, um, was in graduate school. I, I was music director at this fabulous little chapel called St. Albans. Nice. Um, and it's a very special place for me because uh, it's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And, and my wife and I had our first date after a choir rehearsal there. Nice. Uh, Aged and married all in the same wow. little chapel. 
that is incredible <laughs> what a yeah. place then yeah of course that has some serious significance yeah so so but but you know i had eight eight uh graduate school ringers yeah um uh as vocal scholars and and members of the music department faculty from the music department would come sing because they worshiped there right so i had a choir that perhaps i will never have the likes of ever again they were yeah fantastic could read the spots off a page and you know it would be one of these things where um okay i need a setting of the uh you know the prayer that's attributed to saint francis right you know i need that for this weekend oh we don't have anything in the library let me let me write something real quick um we need a psalm setting for some special okay i'm gonna you know and it was a wonderful opportunity a laboratory for me because you know they were so good that they could make up for any of my uh any of my inexperience right sure um and that's well, I know it's just so interesting. That's so much the of what the pattern would have been at at a one of these churches, big or small. But going back three, four hundred years, that's a really similar experience. And I don't, I don't know if there's very many. I'm not particularly well connected to the church music scene. In my faith, we have very like the LDS faith. We have a very strong music tradition that goes back but it's not it's not the same as you know the, the catholic or uh, most traditional protestant faith tradition so to me it seems like it's that your experience is probably more rare and less less common in order to be in 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 terms of like okay well let me write something for this group i don't at least some of the churches like that up in salt lake and some of the music directors i've been a part of don't don't really do that or aren't composers so they don't really dabble in it. They'll just go and find, they'll just search till they find it. So I think that that's really a cool, really unique experience that you had to live that sort of Renaissance tradition of, well, this is my choir and we need this. So I'm going to write this. And it's just like, I think that's amazing. I think it's so cool. Yeah. Well, and I think there's an extra bit of purpose, you know, the purpose for the music, right? The music was, was, we need a setting for this reason. And it does kind of harken back to the times where, you know, it's music for a purpose. It's music for uh, ceremony. It's music for ritual. It's music, it's liturgy as drama, right? Mm, and, yeah. uh, you know, and the opportunity to take part in that. I, I will say along the lines of, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. In my life, I, I very, I got extremely lucky. I did my master's degree with Randall Stroop yeah um, wow who you know i had a lot of composition uh pardon me i had a lot of conducting lessons that ended with hey can you take a can you take a look at this you know so <laughs> so i was very fortunate also you know in my graduate work i had an opportunity to uh work with david wilcox oh for, wow for a bit visit with him uh, over in england cool uh, Morton Lawrenson came over uh, to the East Coast. I had an opportunity to meet with him. So, I, so, so I got to see these living examples, right, of people who were kind of putting it all together, but yeah. were very deeply steeped in. They were rooted and grounded in tradition, right? And uh, you know, and, and very much, very much is the case for me that that you know, it's no. 
I don't think it's an accident that, you know, of, of my top five most popular works, four of them are based on a, a you know, a plain song Cantus Firmus. I mean, that's awesome, right? Yeah, that's incredible. I, I just was like, that would be, for me, being the Renaissance nerd that I am, would be the ultimate win. Like, sweet, I don't have to write anything ever again. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I just think that's fantastic. And and so when you say that, you you know, they were steeped in tradition, um, and then you, you, and then you mentioned that what are some specific things that you feel like, I guess you can get as detailed or as not detailed as you want, but what are some of those small elements that you think make up the tradition? If you, if you broke music yeah. down into its elements, what, what are some things that you think carry that forward to be the tradition? Yeah. You know, I do, a, I do a whole, a whole thing when I visit and do composer residencies on the anatomy of creativity. And then cool. as part, part of that, and uh, I can, we can provide, it would be great. We can do this maybe in the show notes. I have like a couple of PDFs that might be helpful to illustrate this. That would be amazing. Uh, but Thomas Aquinas talks about, you know, what makes something beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. And what I love, I think you might have to be Thomas Aquinas to go there and say, okay, here's what makes something beautiful. <laughs> right. Um, and, and there's three things. And each, basically, just to use the vernacular, um, you know, one of the three things is, is a sense of proportion, mm. which, which I would say musically translates to form, mm. right? Yeah. Some kind of balance. Um, totally. I'm thinking now of the Renaissance, right? The two part, uh, the two part motets, right? Where the first yeah. one ended on a half cadence. Yeah, right? totally. And then you needed the you needed the other part, right? You put the two, kind of like those friendship bracelets where the two pieces. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind of make a hole. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's this idea of proportion, which is great. I think comes out to us, you know, as form. Certainly. Uh, certainly in Baroque, in the fugues of the Baroque, and then later in Sonata Allegra form. So there's this really idea, this idea of form, right? Everything is not just kind of a free composed James Joyce novel, right? <laughs> right, so right. The idea of form is part of that tradition. Um, then there's uh, there's an idea of, of, of clarity, he says. Mm. So it's proportion and clarity. and. You know, I think clarity is is these things that we use that there's organizing principles, right? So there's a big scale form, but then there's organizing principles. I've talked about for me, I've written a lot of works around some plain song. So yeah. for me, that could be it. Um, you know, we see that in all of those Renaissance masses, right? That they were masses of different kinds. Um, yeah. Certainly the isorhythm of the medieval period. Right. You know? So the idea that there's some kind of clarity, right? Um and then the last one he says is, is radiance. And, and mm. that's that kind of, I, I think of the word enthusiasm, right? From the Greek entheos, the God within. That, mm. you know, I tell this story, uh, a buddy of mine once, he took me food shopping because he was like a real nutrition, like guru. Yeah. And I was like, take me food shopping. I want to know what you, like, what do you do? Can I just come hang out? <laughs> and he taught me how to select fruit. Okay. Wow. He said, you know, there's something that if you just look at, at a fruit display, some of the pieces of fruit will just look, they will just have a certain something about them. 
And, yeah. and, and that, you know, for me, that's that idea of radiance. And I don't know if all of my music does. I mean, we all strive, right? I strive right. for my music to be that way. But there's just a certain something, we might call it an it factor, right? Right. So, so that idea of proportion, clarity, and radiance, right? That those things go together. Now we can get really nitty gritty. I mean, we, we sure to get into things like, you know, I I love personally, if I were some of the things that I've inherited, and you see vestiges of this in my music, is you know, I there's huge nods to the circle of fits, right? Right. And the, what a fabulous way for me. I've always used the circle of fits as ways to get out of jams, right? Like if I, yeah. I've modulated and I need to get, the, there's nothing more, you know, exciting for me than getting there through the circle of fits. Yeah. Um, the idea of carefully prepared dissonance. Mm. Um, you know, I, I remember those theory classes where it was like, there were only ways to be less wrong in counterpoint, right? It was nothing was ever right. It was just how wrong were you? Uh, my AP theory class next week. Well, at the time of this recording, will be next week. We're starting our counterpoint unit, and I'm gonna play him that clip because they're gonna they're gonna have a whole new appreciation for. You're going to be less wrong, get as least amount wrong as possible. <laughs> right, and, that's, and for sure, I, you know, when, when I, when I, um, I usually have reasons for yeah. breaking from traditional practice when I do. And sometimes, and I, I think this goes back to that writing for the people in front of you, right? So yeah. I may be trying to solve a problem. Let's face it, I, I see my role as a composer is to make choir directors' lives easier and choir sound great, right? Yeah. So when someone hires me to write for them, they're not always interested in, are there parallel fifths, is there parallel octaves, is this <laughs> suspension, unless that supports what they're trying to do with their mm. choir, right? Right. So if I can save you time on the podium by preparing a suspension, and make the altos lives easier, I wanna do that. But there may be a reason that, I don't know, I, I write for lots of groups that have, um, you know, I, I write for lots of groups that are, that are educationally minded or maybe there's yeah. range limitations. Certainly some of our older, you know, I, I write for church groups that have veteran singers who have been singing for 60 years, but, but the top right. part of the range is, is limited right so there's lots of times where i will i will just say well how do i solve this problem and sometimes i need to divert you know sometimes i need to break some rules pretty intentionally to do that yeah um, and i think but, that there's something to be said about that practicality i had um um carolyn buff she's a musicology at iu she and and we talked a lot about there's this kind of mentality of the sacred cow of, and I think it bleeds over from musicians in general, thinking of early music as the sacred cow that you don't touch and you have to do it exactly like the scholars say. And I think that's kind of bled over into the, uh, any composer, which you obviously honor the composer's wishes, but the composer is also trying to think practically at the same time just like you said of, okay, well, what's the problem before me? Well, this, this choir has such and such forces. And, and I did it several times at the junior high as well. I was like, okay, I have two boys in a group of 40 singers. Mm. Okay. Well, 
but they're really strong singers and they one of them's like cambiata one two one of them's a baritone so i can put Mm -hmm. them in octaves and they can hold it so i write something to them and i think having that practicality really mirrors what composers have done for the majority of their works Mm -hmm. throughout time you have the you have the pieces that are for the the virtuosos that we kind of remember that stand as the the crown jewels i guess but i think if you looked deep through the catalog of every composer a lot of what they wrote was practical and what was in front of them because they were this was their living so they had to adjust to all kinds of different situations so i think that's a really and not a very i don't think i've talked to a large amount of composers who come at it with that same perspective of well what's the ensemble how can i help the ensemble versus well, I have something really profound to say, and I'm this and this. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I just think it's interesting to talk to composers like yourself who have that other side of the coin. Yeah, I, and again, for me, for for it's I, I'm an educator, right? I'm an right. educator, and my experience is predominantly on the podium. So, you know, I, what I lack in compositional formal training, I'm informed by spending a lot of time on the podium and, and, and just saying, why are they, so why is this section not get, why are the tenors not getting this, right? What is it about the, is it the way it was written? Is it the way, you know, and I, and, and I do have that in mind for sure when I'm writing for a group. Um, and, you know, I, I'm happy you brought that up. One of my favorite Renaissance uh, anecdote is that in the workshops of the visual artists of the painters, that yeah. you know, you'd have the, the master, right? Mm-hmm. And they would be working on the big fresco. But but the most popular, I understand it, as I understand it, the most popular Renaissance painting was these little Madonnas and child, right? Just right. very small. And the idea is that they would, the apprentices and whatnot, would churn out these Madonna and child because that's what everyone bought. Right. right. It's like, that is what kept everybody, you know. Yeah, interesting. And, and, and for, for me as a choral composer, right, that's that three-minute acapella octavo, right? Eight pages, four to eight pages. Yeah. It's like, I could write those all day. Yeah, and two to like, four minutes. <laughs> Just exactly, like right in that window. Exactly. Those are the things that it's like, yeah, it's, it's really fun to write the big stuff for choir and orchestra. And I love doing that. Right. And there's a, there's a place for that. There's a need for that for sure. Um, I, no one could be more delighted than, than me that there are choirs commissioning large sacred works for choir and orchestra. How great yeah. is that, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but yeah, but but there's also, you know, there's right now I'm working on a piece, I'm working on two pieces. One of them is uh, for a large university and it's based on uh Noel Singwe, right? Or Singwe oh. Noel from the uh, from the Cambridge. Uh, yeah, the like Fire medieval carols, carols and yeah, stuff. The yeah, carols. It's the same one. There is no roses in. And, yeah. Uh, so I'm working on that, and it's like you know, the orchestra's everyone in the kitchen sink, and and it's huge <laughs> for this choir thing. And it's going to be you know televised, and it's like so. On the one hand, I'm actually doing. I'm taking the original carol motive, right? And yeah. that's actually become the the orchestral kind of development fodder. Sure. Um, 
But meanwhile, there's a new melody, which is kind of in the style of, but more triumphant, more joyous. Um, yeah. So, so that's on one hand. And the other one, it's like there's a, there's a, a middle school group with changing, uh, changing tenors and basses. Yeah. And they want me to write. Um, there's a poet laureate from Charleston, South Carolina. They sent me a bunch of his stuff. So it's like, you know, it's nice to have all of that going at the same yeah. time. And I do, I do believe for me, you know, I always, I always do, I come at it as, you know, how can we solve musical problems? Because I do, I feel like my expertise is, is what I can do to make the piece work for the group that I'm writing for. And, yeah. and every once in a while, you get really lucky and Tenebrae, you know, records <laughs> one of those pieces. Like it would be Caritas. That was written for a, a, a small church group. They said, yeah. Michael, please don't do any divisive. I just don't have the forces. Some weeks I have the forces. Some weeks I don't have the forces. I, get one I can't count forces. on it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they said, just please don't, you know, please don't write any Debussy. So much of your stuff I love, but it has too much Debussy. So it was like, that was my charge. My charge was to stick to four voices only. Yeah. And, and it worked for that original group. And then, yeah, I do. I feel like I get really lucky when it, it, it finds a wider audience. Yeah. And it, and it just goes to show though, that, that I think, so I, t I've been talking about it a lot with uh, my music theory students so far and with some of the other guests I've had on um, Philip Lasser and Andrew Maxfield about, you know, if you break music down, kind of like what I mentioned before, these small little elements, you, you know, you talked about the three that kind of more broadly speaking, the St. Thomas Aquinas talked about, but you can take that four part piece, not the VC. And it's like, I bet a really good junior high choir could take Ubi Caritas and make it awesome. And Absolutely. then a group like Tenebrae makes it stunning because it's, it's all about how you give everything then to those musical elements. The complexity of the music doesn't necessarily always equate to beauty or you know, in, in St. Thomas, Thomas Aquinas's, by that definition, those three things, complexity doesn't always equal that beauty. And so I think that there's a great, a great lesson to be learned there for all of us, even from me as the conductor side who, and I dabble in composing here and there when I get an idea, but that comes once every, you know, three years. <laughs> so then I just throw it out and then it all goes silent. But from the conductor standpoint, okay, I don't have to do the most complex piece. I can take my most advanced choir and do a unison piece that splits into two and make it just stunning. And I could do that same with my beginning group that has eight singers in it. And like, mm -hmm. and I, I think that there's really some profound lessons to be had in that. Yeah, I think, I, I, I mean, I think if I'm, if I'm, uh, if I'm tracking you correctly, I think that, that you've had several times on the podcast where you've had people talk about like the idea of like uh, less is more. You yeah, know, that, that can be that that can be it. Um, totally, totally. You know, and and, um, you know, also just the idea of only writing the right notes. Right. <laughs> right. You know? Right. I, and. And typically what I do is I will just, you know, I, I, uh, Alan Alda, my wife and I uh, listened to one of his podcasts uh, mm -hmm. about communication and, and he just had this book come out a couple of years ago about communication. And he was talking about the process of writing 
And he said, you know, you have to have a first draft, right, in order to edit it. So typically Mm -hmm. what I will do is I will just let it out. Get, you know, you need to have a bad first draft. Give yourself permission to have a bad first draft. And then typically what I spend my time doing is removing everything that's not essential, right? Everything that doesn't go towards that proportion, that sense of wholeness, um, you know, that's, I think, what where the real work is. And I think that's what makes it a craft rather than, you know, I can, it's easy for me to sit and improvise. I can improvise all day, but it's taking that and, and really, really making sure kind of, you know, like the, you know, like the artist with the chisel, right? In the marble, it's like the more you chip away, the, the finer it gets. So, yeah. And I, uh, oh man, I think that's so, and I think that's what, I mean, this is completely off of maybe what our original topic is, but that totally is a, is a paralytic, I think, for so many artists in general, is that let yourself do a bad first draft. Just let yourself do it. It's like you saying that I was like, oh, but I can't, <laughs> you know, but, but it's, an, but I think you're totally right in the sense that once you, once you've, that's the material to work with. That's the marble cube. And then you, you craft kind of as you go. And so, so I, I guess I have a question on top of that is what okay. do you find I guess, sorry, there's someone practicing the saxophone in the background. It'll be good background music, but. <laughs> All good. It's, just, it's like Charles Ives then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so my, my question for you is, is when you're, when you're approaching a piece or a text or a commission or, or, a, or even just a passion project, what are some, some of those things that really get you excited about a project? When you're like, ooh, okay, cool. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it, 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 I think that I play a very small part in, in the circle of creation, right? So I, I think at the top is the institution or individual, um, and they have a reason, right? They have a mission. Um, had an opportunity, great example of an individual, you know, this guy, he was married for 60 years. And, and for the 40th, 50th, and 60th, he had a work commission for his wife, right? So it's like, I think about him, I think about 60 years of love, right? And he all of a sudden drops that in my lap and says, hey, <laughs> I want you to write a piece for that's going to be, you know, that's no pressure. Capture that. <laughs> um, yeah, right. So, but, but, so, so there's the person who does the commissioning, and there's the mission. And sometimes I get excited about that mission, right? It could be an organization. It could be, you know, um, you know, a celebration. It could be, uh, it could be to commemorate the memory of. So, so it could be, you know, there could be the mission behind it. And then, you know, my job is is to translate musical ideas and text in in support of that mission. I think that's what we take from Bach, right? I think that that very strong sense that music exists to amplify the message right Mm, Um, yeah and 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 for me that's that's what i do and then after that i'm really out of the equation i mean sometimes people have me in to conduct the work or whatever but after that i mean it's the conductor who takes over and and then the conductor translates that it's the choir that has a responsibility and then the audience who has a responsibility for showing up 
clearing space in their world. So I'm just like a very small slice of that whole project. And I generally get excited about all of the other things. Um, I was talking before about this Sing We Noel. I mean, I was excited to say, well, okay. You know, I originally thought, is there a way that I could get away with setting the original carol tune, right? And, and I looked, right. I, I go through this incredibly detailed questionnaire process when somebody commissions for me, because I do, I write across a wide range for a wide range of levels and whatnot. And it's important to me, you know, that if I ask people, is it, what do you want included? What do you not want included? What do you want this piece to sound like? I've had several times where people will say they want, you know, brass organ and percussion, and they give me three examples of an acapella piece. And it's like, well, <laughs> which direction, you know, which, which way do we want to steer the ship? Um, right. So for me, I, you know, the idea of, can I get away with setting this sing we know well, right? This, this medieval carol. And, uh, and the answer was no, because one of the things that they wanted was, you know, in a post-COVID world, or at least as a transitioning back to a new normal world, they sure. wanted it to be joyous and triumphant. And this idea of we're all together and we can sing again. And for most people, the kind of modal music and these kind of Phrygian cadences and whatnot doesn't, doesn't equate <laughs> right. with joy, right? For me, <laughs> right. it might. For you, it might. But, right. You know, for the listeners, it might. But for, but for the people in charge of, uh, you know, donors and whatnot, I, I'm thinking about the institution. They're, they're not going to, medieval is not going to read as joyful. But right. what about the idea of taking something old, right? We're going to include it. And we might have to, you know, I've done that with some of the Hildegard stuff is that in order yeah. to make it work in modern notation, I have to like cheat a little bit with the original source material. Sure. Um, but, but the idea, you know, the idea that people get excited about Veni Veni Emmanuel, my setting of that, I did it at Carnegie Hall and people stood up and cheered like it was like a, like a football game. And the <laughs> idea amazing. that people will get up and cheer for Latin chant makes me, I mean, those are one of those things to say like, what a, what a cool way to keep a thousand year old, you know, melody alive. And that, that is something yeah. that, that, you know, because it, it, I think it points back, I think it points back to where we've come from, but I think it also points forward that, you know, some of my settings, specifically that one, um, I just said uh, DSEA, which is starting to really, people are starting to embrace that because it's highly rhythmic. And I, right. I think the highly rhythmic music sounds a lot like what most people hear on the radio, right? It's very rhythmically driven. Yeah. Totally. Um, which really reminds me of the medieval period, right? Yeah, 100%. Rhythm, yeah, rhythm reigned reign supreme. So, yeah. you know, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about music history that we have these cycles, right? Of like romanticism followed by classicism, right? And one is, one is like an outpouring of emotion and the other is like a lot of restraint, right? And, right. Uh, you know, I think, I think in, in the Renaissance, we see that at least my, my take on it is we see that very kind of carefully crafted, these canons and, um, you know, all of these, uh, you know, the Misa Prolazionum. I mean, just what a crazy, wonderful, yeah. odd. Yeah, you know, so 
like wild literally of just like whoa but yeah. it's but it's very there are specific rules that are followed and you know very restrained right followed by yeah. the baroque with this kind of outpouring of just notes just notes <laughs> upon notes so many notes right um you know i love i love the what do they call it the baroque sewing machine that and it sounds like heavy metal i mean that's that is heavy metal straight up today like i remember listening to heavy metal and when i first heard bach and handle and any of it with orchestra and they had it and i was like Oh my gosh, this is what my me and my bandmates play. Like, you know, like, so yeah. Exactly. And 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 you know, and as a conductor for me, I love programming, you know, the great composers specifically, you know, and I love seeing people get, you know, I'll do, I'll do, you know, a couple of movements from a Haydn mass for an honor choir. And I love when I see they get like how cool that is, right? Like how cool Haydn can be when when Haydn's done well. Or one of the favorite pieces um, that I, that I'll do with uh, with choirs is the Bach Sicuclo uh, Cucisest from Magnificat. Yeah, and, totally. And the rhythm in that, I mean, it's so rhythmic, right? And yeah. So so there's two things, right? I get excited about you know the people I get to work with. I get excited about the content. And then, you know, I get excited about that content being performed in a way that it's like the, the people who are singing it, they like, they get how awesome it is that, that there's this music around, right? That hasn't been done. Um, well, that was written, you know, hundreds of years ago, sometimes even long, you know, thousands right. of, more than a thousand years. And then it's still around and seeing someone get that were part of a very long chain. Now, listen, we can all spend lots of time talking about the problems with being part of a long chain, right? That long chain right. has lots of great stuff and has lots of horrible stuff, right? Right. But, but but just the idea that we acknowledge it all, right? That we acknowledge the, you know, that there's not, I think you spoke, you put words to it, that it's not like there's, there's music and music done well, regardless of the genre. There's something compelling. That's that radiance, right? That clarity, yeah. that radiance that Aquinas was talking about, that any style done really well, there's something compelling about that. Yeah. And something and something primal, regardless of the culture, right? Like it it doesn't really matter. My 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 lens through which I see music is very different even than my colleagues. And we went to the same school. Like it doesn't. So, so how do we, okay, well, we're, we're this, this pulls us. How are we drawing all these elements together to create this really? I like, I really like that word radiance that there's this radiance in the music itself. And, and, and I think that I think, well, something that you said that resonates with me is seeing the, the singers, the performers, and or the audience get it of why it's so cool. That's the entire reason for for Sound of Ages that I started and this podcast. And my goal is that I mean, we do stuff like that all the time here at the high school where you, know, you were talking about, I thought everyone did Bach chorales. It's like, yeah, we're doing William Byrd, <laughs> stuff like this. And it's like when they get it, and you see that and you're like, whoa, this music changed me. And now it's a part of you and you'll have these experiences too, even if it's not with this, but whoa, this is really cool. And I think that's 
such an exciting moment too for, as as a as conductors. So when we get music that when I get music that's inspired, like you said, connecting the old to the new and and is creating this or the old to the now, and it's it's the path forward. I just freak out about that kind of stuff. So anything like yours where it's like, whoa, here's original chant material. And it's not like gimmicky or like there's real substance to it. Like I, I totally feel like your work has. Then it's like, whoa, okay. This is a really cool new adaptation of this really old thing. Here's another color in the palette that we can use to keep that alive, but also moving forward. So I think it's, I think it's amazing that that radiance and that's what gives radiance to me is because Mm -hmm. it connects all the people together then the people now to the people back then so we can learn forwards yeah there's a beautiful interdependence um in my in in that for sure and and uh and you know and again i I, i've written um I've written a tedeum um that was to be performed you know eight groups kind of co-commissioned this work and, uh, and I decided that I was going to make, you know, the unifying material it was going to be the today I'm champ, not because anyone will even know it, right? But just because I, I just love the idea that there's this kind of, um, you know, this is what is going to kind of pull it all together and, and, and kind of be a jumping off point for me. Um, and, and it's not that I can't think of the melody, right? I have plenty of melodies. Um, but, but it's just the idea, like you said, there's an interconnectedness. It's how I fell in love um, with the Duraflate movie Caritas, right? Um, totally. It's classic and timeless. Right. And, and, you know, it's funny is that many people said, and, and uh, when they heard the Tenebrae version of my movie Caritas, they said, oh my gosh, you know, this, this reminds me of the Duraflate. And it's very intentional because very much I said, Okay, well, this person wants Ubi Caritas. They want it to only be in four parts, right? They wanted to have the chant tune. And, and it would be like, well, what if let's take the same idea, right, that, that Durf yeah. had, but how would that be expressed in 21st century harmony, right? Right. As opposed to that 20th century harmony. And that's so much the case. Even uh, my Omani Mysterium, right? One of my number one all-time favorite pieces is the Victoria Omani Mysterium. Absolutely. I mean, listen to it over and over and over and over again. And, and so it's very intentional that the very first, uh, the very first opening line, the soprano line is that descending fifth. Yeah. It's so iconic. It, it has nothing to do with the rest of the piece, right? It's in a it's in a different mode. It's totally right. It's not, but but just that idea where it's like that nod, that thank you, thank you for all of this this rich tapestry that you've given us, and uh, you know, so so those are those are you know, I, I think interconnected is a great is a great way to look at it, and and I think you said as we move forward and as we learn forward, I think that's a really yeah. great way to language it. Yeah. And it, because it, it does, it just keeps changing and molding and we adapt and react and influence and it's all this organic. And I, and I think that's something that comes across in, in works that I like is I really, uh, and things that aesthetically speak to me is things that feel really organic. It doesn't feel contrived. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel kind of contrite. It's just this organic 
like subtlety is where the real art lies and this organic motion. And, and I, so I think in a lot of ways that that learning forward is kind of a representation of that organic movement, because that's just what humans do. And so, you know, so I think that the way you approach those things speaks to me really strongly. And I think it's really neat because again, I'm a freak about that, but <laughs> again, who's going to stand up and cheer at like at Latin chant? Well, we have to kind of show them a little bit and then you kind of help them get to it. So. Right. And what's the access point, right? Because right. You know, I, I remember very vividly, I wrote a work that was for strings and organ and it was for a, um, you know, a service of remembrance. And so rightfully so it was extremely, not extremely, it was more on the, you know, kind of uh, pensive side of the work that I've written. And I remember hearing someone after I was at the premiere and, and I heard someone come up and like, it was like the daughter in the choir and came up to her dad, wanting her dad to be like super excited that she just got to premiere this work, right? And the dad was like, you know, it sounded just kind of slow and boring. And Ouch. Yeah, right. Like you never know that the composer's standing behind you. But, <laughs> but I was thinking about, you know, how does the average person, right, a non-musical scholar experience a piece of music, right? And, and, you know, organ and strings, slow, piano. I mean, that is, that is what a lot of people would consider to be boring, right? Versus... Right fast and loud. I mean, Wagner, right, said, when in doubt, louder and faster. <laughs> right. And um, and normally, and now, if I write a big work that, that is for a large sum uh, of money and resources and whatnot, I will typically coach people that audiences tend to react best to big introductions and big finishes, right? And right. If you're spending tens of thousands of dollars to commission a work and you're putting years of your life into it, like people in general respond to a, that you'll get a bigger wow with a fortissimo, you know, everybody opening than you will with, you know, my seven last words. It starts off, you know, with the overtone series starting all the way in the double basses, low bit. And it's like a minute and a half before you get anywhere. Right. 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 And for me, that was right for the seven last words text, right? But you're not going to, right. but it was written, right? That was written as service music for Holy Week. Right. And where it, that's and very specific mission, like what you said earlier, like that, that piece had a very specific mission and fulfilling that mission isn't necessarily big, loud, fast at the start and the close, you know, you're filling that mission. Exactly. So the idea, and, and again, for me, it's the idea of responding and amplifying the text. And, but, but I think it's a mistake to not include the people listening in the equation, right? It's yeah. not, you're not writing to, you're not writing to your audience, right? You're writing knowing that there will be an audience. And it's the word that you used is an access point, right? How can I provide an access point to you know, most of the people walking in front of my house today, if I went out and asked them to name, you know, their favorite choir, what, you know, I don't even know if they would know. I mean, what right. most people know, but the people who come to performances, most people who come to performances are not educated musicians. They never were. And Right. So, so if we can tell a story in a way that provides an access point for everyone, gosh, I mean, it's like, that's what I dedicated my life to. How do I translate the mission of the ensemble, 
into something that can be enjoyed and accessed at their own level. It's, it's what we love about, there's so many pop references to things that, that work on different levels, right? Mm. Uh, and, and I don't know if you have a favorite one, but it's something that can be enjoyed by adults and children and in-betweens and, and, and whatnot, you know? So it's not watering it down. It's, it's doing everything we can to provide a way for people to get that aha moment that you talked about before. Yeah. For them to get, you know, just, it, it's what you said. Maybe what we're doing, maybe all we're doing is just uncovering the radiance, right? Right. Yeah, that's really profound. Yeah, man. Oh, that gives me all kinds of crazy thoughts, but we should wrap, we should wrap up. Um, it's, it's been uh, just such a great pleasure to speak and I'd love to have you on again uh, sometime in the future. And, sure. you know, and, and I think it would be cool to, you know, to, if you have works coming up that are particular that you think would work particularly well on the podcast or something like, Hey, I have this, the premiere is here. It's going to be available for download. I'd love to, to do as much promotional work and, spread everyone's radiance and stuff as much as possible because i think it it i think that's you summed it up perfectly my own perception of your music is i think it gives a really really good wide open access point to a wide audience of people to understand and access early music it just it, with the simple baseline of okay this is chant these are harmonies you're used to we're going to connect the dots. So I, I think that it's a brilliant access point that I hope you, I hope to see just tons more. So. Oh, well, it's so, so nice of you to say that. And it reminds me of why I do what I do. Cause I spend an awful lot of time by myself struggling over all of these things. So to hear it reflected back in, in your comments and in these beautiful performances and recordings that people do, it really does remind me why I do, you know, why I do what I do. So, so thanks so much. Oh, good. Making the music matter. And uh, we're going to link some goodies in the show notes. Yeah, um, that would be fantastic. I'm, I'm going to get you that P, uh, the PDF and then maybe we can link some of the, uh, the Tenebrae stuff too. Yeah. And I'll put your, your website down in there too. And, and okay. any yeah. other, like maybe if you have newer works that are new releases or something, cause I know you're, um, really quickly before we close, I know you're part of this new music, whether it's a podcast, I couldn't, I haven't spent enough time yet researching it, but like a new music series or new music podcast through JW Pepper um, that I saw on their website. Um, and I'd love to promote that or anything. Oh yeah. Part I, of. They just did. Yeah. They just did like, what have you done? They asked me, they got in touch with me and they said, Hey, listen, not everybody's back to in-person reading sessions. They, what have you done since COVID? And like, we want to hear the stories behind it. So we can we can put that. It's kind of like a behind the music of a, of a bunch of pieces. So Sweet. we can put that in the notes too, if you like. Yeah, I would love, I think that, yeah, as much access people can get to, to you out here on the West Coast and things that you're doing would be fantastic. Yeah, oh, I would be, of course, I'd be delighted. And yeah, I'm looking forward to our continued conversation for sure.
hope you're feeling motivated, pumped up, excited to go and create something. Um, I think the anatomy of creativity uh, that Michael has um, workshopped and created is a really cool concept and really help us get out of writer's block or creative's block, whatever that's, whatever you call it in your field. And uh, it was really cool to hear his perspective on those things and how to create. If you like the show, a five-star rating, a subscription, a review, a comment, a share, a download, or whatever. It just helps to spread the word of early music and choral music and, and all the good that it brings. So check us out every Monday here on Early Music Monday.